University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Well, nearly 800 years before Luke penned the book of Acts, which we'll be reading this morning, the great Homer wrote the Iliad. Now, this epic poem tells the story of the war between Troy and the Greek states, the love of Paris and Helen, the great Achilles and Odysseus of the Odyssey. The narrative has influenced countless other works of literature and film and art. In fact, most literary scholars have argued that not only is Homer's work the most significant piece of Greek literature, but could quite possibly be the most influential piece of Western literature that we have. But did you know that all of this great work, this epic poem, all came from the hands of a blind man? Homer was blind, he, yet he found a way to imagine and pen this narrative into light, and it still influences us nearly 3,000 years later. You know, sometimes it is difficult to see clearly where God is leading. Oftentimes we lack the imagination and courage to go there. Sometimes we don't step forward in faith because we demand that things be exactly as we expect them to be, precise steps. And yet we've been looking through this 2020 vision and considering what it looks like to boldly step forward in faith, not into precise circumstances. We've been exploring what it looks like for us to grow as a faith community, not only inwardly but outwardly as we connect with more people, to be a more authentic presence of Jesus in Baton Rouge. And together we discern what this looks like, and together we step forward in faith, and today we wrap up that series in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, our story this morning fits into the category of bizarre. It joins the likes of Balaam and his talking donkey, the time that Paul was preaching at such a boring rate that a teenager fell out of a window and dropped dead to the ground only to be resurrected back to life. That time that Samson killed the Philistine infantry with just a donkey jawbone, or the time that Jesus cursed that innocent fig tree just for being there. It's an awkward story. It's a fascinating story. So what is the context of our passage? Well, we learn that the church is new. It's fresh and it's thriving. People are coming to know Jesus by the thousands. The church is living in organic community. They are providing for each other's needs. They are living life well together. They are praying with one another. They are growing and worshiping together. They're sharing their possessions to anyone who had a need. People are literally living out the words of Jesus by selling their possessions and their land and giving it to the people who were in need. It's a beautiful moment in the church. And caught up in the passion of this moment are a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. And Acts chapter 5 verse 1 reads this way. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias... 
How is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you receive for this land? Didn't it belong to you before you sold it? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. My first response when I read this passage is, okay, Peter, whoa, slow your roll. Where do you get the nerve to tell this man what he can and cannot do with his money? What, what right does the church have in this man's personal life and his business dealings? Shouldn't you be grateful for the very fact that he's just giving to the church in the first place? And even if this somehow involves the church, since Ananias and Sapphira decided to give, where does Peter get off using such kind of judgmental language? This is an uncomfortable story because many, if not most of us, cannot imagine this happening in our day and age. In fact, if this type of altercation happened in the church today, Ananias and Sapphira would simply leave this church and go find another church. But there's something going on here. There's something transcendently more happening here that we need to pay attention to. You see, like many of their fellow friends, Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of their land to give to the church to use the money however the church desired. But in full knowledge of how much they sold the land for, Ananias came before the apostles, presenting the money and telling them that this is everything that he earned for selling the land. But it wasn't. Where Ananias and Sapphira's motives were they possibly motivated by jealousy or desire for attention? This is connected to Acts chapter 4, in which we learn that people are generously giving of themselves in the church, including a man named Barnabas, who will be a key figure in the early church. So were they giving this so that they would be viewed in a better light? Were they giving this so they looked as if they were self-sacrificing people who abundantly gave of themselves to the church so that other people viewed them in high light, maybe even promoting them up within the leadership of the church? And yet the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter sees right through their shenanigans. I love how Eugene Peterson translates it in the message this way. Ananias, how did Satan get you to lie to the Holy Spirit and secretly keep back the price of the field? Before you sold it, it was all yours. And after you sold it, the money was yours to do with what you wished. So what got into you that you would pull a trick like this? You didn't just lie to men, but you lied to God. Okay, okay. Ananias has been caught in a lie. No big deal. He'll just confess, he'll repent, and we'll all move on from this. And then verse 5 says this, When Ananias heard this, he fell dead, and a great fear seized all the people at what they had seen. Then some of the young men came forward, wrapping up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Do y'all remember that classic 1989 movie, Weekend at Bernie's? Anybody remember this movie? Some of my millennials and Gen Xers definitely remember this movie. So the movie is based on two salesmen that get invited to their boss's beach house for the weekend, and then their boss dies. And they're proceeded to prop him up as if he is a living body for the rest of the weekend to pull off what they were hoping to pull off. So our story has a Weekend at Bernie's feel to it. This is just Weekend at Ananias, if you will. 
It's an awkward story. We, we don't know what to do with it. What happened in this moment that says that Ananias was seized with fear and dropped dead? And I love how the Bible presents it as if these young men didn't miss a beat. They just came right in like you normally do, pick up a body, wrap it up, and go bury it outside. Like what was going on in the early church that this was just part of their M.O.? But it says this in verse 8. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Okay, if you were to ask me what my bizarre takeaway from this story is, apparently if you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're going to die. There's a lot of weird things that you can look at this passage and say, why is this included in the Bible? And I love how the authors give no commentary on when Ananias dies, as if it was this normal thing. But all of a sudden, when Sapphira drops down dead, then all of a sudden, everyone is seized with fear in this moment. He says, the story of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5 is disturbing for me. It certainly has been used many times in the church's history to justify authoritarian rule within the church. You're going against God's will that I have determined? I can hear the echoes of the Salem witch trials and the inquisitions and many more unfortunate moments in the church's history. So this passage is not intended to be in here to authorize authoritarian rule within the church as, as if ruling by fear and domination. The story has much more. There's a lot more implications for our lives and for the church. When we first started Mosaic Church back in North Carolina, I tried to create a lot of opportunities to support my family, which included designing websites. And a member of the congregation I just left wanted me to design a website for his business of training people so that they could have a concealed carried permit. And so he wanted me to design this around the concept of the name was Integrity Firearms. So I designed a website for him, I created a logo, I pulled this major brand together, and then we sat down and we started walking through the website, the art design, the branding, except when I typed in the website, integrityfirearms.com did not pull up. And I did a quick search and I realized that I had made a stupid mistake and had typed in integrity wrong when I actually purchased the rights to the site. Easy fix, I'll just buy the right name of the site fix the website, and send it off to him. So I corrected everything. Except when a week came, and then two weeks, and then three weeks passed, every time I tried to call him in order to get paid for the work I did, he would never answer the phone. And then when I finally got a hold of him, he said, well, I decided since you didn't spell the name right the first time that I'm not going to pay you for your work. Apparently this guy didn't want to live into the name that he picked for his business, Integrity Firearms. He says, one author put it, integrity is doing the right thing when nobody's watching and doing as you say you would do. Or as one author put it, with integrity, you have nothing to fear since you have nothing to hide. With integrity, you do what's right so you have no guilt. See, on a scale of one to ten, one being deceitful and ten being the epitome of integrity, 
Ananias and Sapphira were like a negative five. (laughs) Their intentions were to deceive the church by falsely presenting themselves as self-sacrificially righteous purists, when really they were just conniving crooks. As one author put it, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to belong to the renewed people of God, yet they wanted to live like they were people of darkness. The integrity we have as individuals and collectively integrity we have as a church is a fragile thing. One mistake or perceived ill intention will ruin the relationship for many within the church or with the church with an individual. What we are doing here, who is leading us and our intentions must be sound and sincere and good. Take, for example, our strategic growth initiative is a perfect example. We're not hiding anything. We're not trying to bait and switch people to come to our church when really we were asking them to do something else. We're earnestly seeking with honesty and integrity that we want to recruit people to our congregation so that we can grow our congregation and our congregation's ability to minister to this community. See, too many churches fall apart with ill-conceived intentions or power struggles or self-centered campaigns masked with righteous intentions or white-knuckle control rooted in fear and mistrust. I, I want to be the type of person who can be completely honest, that my candor and forthrightness, I don't want to mix words, I don't talk out of one side of my mouth and then mean something else out of the other side of my mouth. My words mean what I say. And I believe that the integrity of the church determines the health and growth of a church. Therefore, our intentions are pure and our faith is being led by the Spirit of God instead of selfish ambition, then we're heading down the right road to being the congregation that God desires. But a hard lesson that we have to learn from Ananias and Sapphira is they teach us about our motivation for serving and giving to the church as a whole. You see, this odd couple were motivated by jealousy and self-centeredness as they placed their incomplete offering at the feet of the disciples so that they would receive praise from their fellow church members and be elevated to the status of church leaders. What I want us to consider is what is the motivation and drive behind our willingness to serve? or our gifts to the church. You see, I've come to find that healthy and growing congregations are full of servant leaders. A servant model of leadership is we turn to Jesus. Through his life and ministry, we see how he humbly placed himself before God's will. He defied greatness in order to be a servant, leaving his position of prominence in order to make others feel welcome in the kingdom of God. How he nurtured and empowered other people to take up his movement. The epitome of Jesus' servant leadership is seen in the hours before he's arrested and crucified. The Son of God gets down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of the disciples. Even Peter and Judas who will betray him. As leadership guru Simon Sinek put it, if your actions inspire others to dream more, to learn more, to do more, and become more, you are a leader. You see, servant leadership is about putting the needs of others and the health of an organization above our own. Great leaders care and empower and listen to and equip others. Healthy and growing churches do not have people that simply just talk a lot about change and doing good, but it's filled with people who roll up their sleeves and get to work to make that dream become a reality. The phrase, me too, was first used in 2006 
as uh, it was penned by somebody who was a sexual harassment survivor and activist. And it's become familiar in our public today, especially starting in 2017 with prominent film mogul Harvey Weinstein was accused of swapping roles in his films for inappropriate favors. And what what happened by the hands of Harvey Weinstein was merely a drop in the oceans of the many cases of sexual harassment and assault on women in America. And what surprised many, but not all of us, was that church too had become embroiled in the matter. Namely, that clergy and lay leaders had a long history of sexual harassment and assault. In fact, in the Southern Baptist movement alone, there were hundreds of abusers of thousands of victims that were being covered up by the convention due to their name and the authority they had within the movement. And as cooperative Baptists, it's important for us to know that our fellowship has created a clergy sexual misconduct task force to raise awareness, to listen to stories, to create resources, to provide leadership to churches facing such unimaginable atrocities. But one of the the fortunate things about this very important movement is that it's taught us that transparency and accountability are crucial to the church community. And I think that's another important takeaway we get from this very strange story of Ananias and Sapphira. Transparency and accountability are crucial for healthy and growing churches. You see, for many, you still can't think of a church being so intrusive in your life as they were with Ananias and Sapphira. And maybe it's a fair question to ask of what's the line between what is personal and what is spiritual and what is ecclesial in our life? Where is the line between what I do in my life and where the church speaks authoritatively to it? You see, life uh, was different in the first century Palestine. They were so dependent on each other. Everyone needed each other, not just for their spiritual needs on a Sunday, but they mutually depended on each other for community and and resources and spiritual formation and worship and business and everyday situation. The church was literally at the center of the way they lived their lives. But today's different, for good or for ill. See, for most, we don't need the church in the same way that the first church needed each other. We have resources, we have jobs, we have livelihood, we have dreams all on our own. And for most, the church is just part of our life, just like our hobbies and our work are parts of our lives. But I would argue the invitation of Jesus to follow Jesus is the reconfiguration of our entire life around Jesus and his church. Church doesn't need to be the first thing on our mind when we wake up in the morning or the last thing on our mind when we go to bed at night. The church should be an integral part of our lives. And the church should have an influence on our decisions of how we make and how we conduct ourselves because the church is supposed to be the body of Christ in which we are journeying together to become more like Christ. The church is intended not to be a micromanaging overlord over our lives, but we should be sojourners together as we try to empower one another to live out the way of Jesus by encouraging each other, by by speaking into each other's life out of grace and hope and love and mercy. And in in, in turn, the church then affects how we live our lives as a faith community. Does that mean we're going to get things right 100% of the time? Absolutely not. 
Does that mean that the church will make mistakes and have missteps and require us to reconcile with one another and positively try to move forward in faithfulness to God and with each other? The church should be a model of transparency and accountability in all areas of our life and also within our work and leadership as we try to be a Christ example in this world. I mentioned to you before that I really love to cook. And one of the things I love to make from scratch is biscuits. And um, just the thought of having a fresh hot biscuit right now with raspberry jelly on it just might do me in for the rest of the day. Over Christmas, we were back in North Carolina, and uh, my three brothers and I were making breakfast. And we got out the mixing bowl, we pulled out the shortening, we pulled out a dash of sugar, pulled down the sprinkling of baking powder. But then we realized that we had all purpose flour. Now for my non-bakers in the room, you don't want to make biscuits with all-purpose flour. You need self-rising flour. You can make them, they're just not the same. And so we went out to one store, and it was a couple days after Christmas, they were completely out. We go to another store, they're completely out. We go to another store, they're completely out. We finally resign ourselves to making biscuits with all-purpose flour. It's just not the same. It's an essential ingredient that you need. You see, one of the essential ingredients for healthy and growing churches is that we invest our lives together. When we look back at the movement of what's happening around Ananias and Sapphira, these people were investing their lives with one another. They were caring for one another, nurturing one another. They were helping each other grow up in the way of Jesus. And we get the impression from Ananias and Sapphira that they had distanced themselves from all of that. While the church was experiencing authentic community, they were off to the side doing their own thing. And how easy is it for that to be our experience with the church? How easy is it for us to compartmentalize church to an hour and a half, two hour experience on Sunday mornings and then we're done for the week? But what we see from the early church, what the word church literally means, ecclesia, is a gathering of people a fellowship, a community. And so in the purest sense, the church isn't supposed to be a place that worships. The church is intended to be a community that lives life well together. And when we live life well together, we trust one another. We build up mutual respect. We're able to speak into each other's lives. And the last thing I want to see from the text this morning is that when we can pull this together, we begin to experience that we have more faith in God and through God and one another. Unfortunately for Ananias and Sapphira, they, they served as a necessary hurdle for the early church. But it's through this perplexing story that the church matured and they cultivated integrity and they became more transparent and accountable and they invested their lives together. In the verses and chapters around Acts chapter 5, we learn that the church literally grew by thousands of people. Lives were transformed. Miracles were performed. New ministries were commissioned. And all of this came out of the unfortunate situation of a man named Ananias and Sapphira. Healthy and growing churches have faith in God and through God and one another. It's, it's too easy when conflict and crisis occur to turn to know what is best, ourselves. 
and how we think we should handle things. But what we see through the church is they had a willingness to turn to God and to each other for leadership and guidance. As Richard Rohr put it, faith is not overcoming obstacles. It's experiencing them all the way through. Faith is believing and having confidence that God will guide us through all of our experiences. And yet faith also begins when we come to a crisis and and, and, and precipice of change. Faith is, is nurturing through the ongoing process of spiritual formation as a faith community. When we invest time in reading God's word and praying together and discussing how it's implemented into our lives, dynamic faith comes together through God. When we have faith in God and through one another, we come to a place of mutual trust and decisions being made and visions being cast and strategies being implemented. When we have faith in and through God and one another, we relinquish our desire to control, to manipulate, to thwart, to doubt because we know that the people we have surrounded ourselves are doing so with integrity. When we have faith in God and through one another, the time we invest in one another pays off with greater understanding of how each each other works, how individuals communicate, how we bring our motives and share our goodness from our hearts. We have faith in God and through God and one another, we're willing to process and heal and grow together through conflict and hurdles and missteps and crisis. We have faith in God and through God and one another, We walk hand in hand in discovering what God is doing next and how we might be a part of that together. As the great Thomas Merton put it, you do not need to know the precise, precisely what is happening or exactly where it is all going. What you need to do is recognize the possibility and challenges offered by the present moment and to embrace them with courage and faith and hope together. From our scripture this morning, we see the remarkable invitation to be a healthy and growing church. And through our 2020 vision, we are seeking to be and to do just that. And as we continue to discern God's leadership, may we see that sometimes there are necessary and challenging moments in the church's development like we see in Ananias and Sapphira. Yet there are opportunities for us to grow individually and grow together as a faith community as we boldly step forward in faithfulness to God and faithfulness to one another. For our time of reflection and response this morning, uh, we want to give you a few moments to process this really perplexing story. It really is a weird story. And even while I was going over my notes on Thursday, I was like, Do I really want to preach on Acts chapter 5? This is really a strange passage. So we want to give you a few moments to talk about its implications for your life as an individual and for our lives together as a faith community. So we've got a couple questions up here. Sharing the journey is to turn to a partner next to you and discuss these. How is God speaking to you through the text? What makes UBC a healthy church? What makes UBC a growing church? Take a few moments together and process how God is speaking to you this morning.